Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I'm your host today, and we're going to be talking about attack surface management and what you can do to automate and master it. We're also going to be bringing in a special guest, Richard Ford from Praetorian, a little bit later to share some insights and wisdom that I think you'll find quite valuable. So stay tuned. And if you are following us on LinkedIn, great. If not, please go and do so because you get a lot more than just podcasts. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast channel and you think this is a great episode, if you haven't done so already, give us five stars. That boost really helps us out. Now, first of all, let's define our terms. I'm going to turn to IBM for some definitions. Attack surface management is a continuous discovery, analysis, remediation, and monitoring of the cybersecurity vulnerabilities and potential attack vectors that make up an organization's attack surface. Okay, great, but what's an attack surface? So let me go to the same source. An organization's attack surface is a sum of vulnerabilities, pathways, or methods, sometimes called attack vectors, that hackers can use to gain unauthorized access to the network or sensitive data to carry out a cyber attack. All right, well, so what? Who cares? Let's take a look at what we used to look at a while back. We'll go back, back into time, maybe 10 years or so to the year 2013. At the time, we ran a lot of servers on premises, right? We had multiple racks of Dell servers. They probably ran VMware so you could virtualize the technologies. And these servers really didn't change that often. On average, you maybe had two change releases per month for a large application, if that. But before you could make a change, you needed to submit a change ticket that would clearly document what change needed to be done. For example, a change ticket might ask the firewall team to open up a port on the server so we could talk to a database. And these change tickets were brought through the change approval board once a week, and they would ensure that there's no conflicts between the changes that you want and other applications. Now, let's fast forward 10 years to the year 2023. Now, our company runs IT services in multiple cloud providers, as well as various third-party hosted SaaS applications. Our virtual machines have been replaced by auto-scaling containers that run in Kubernetes clusters. And some of your servers are even replaced by serverless functions like AWS Lambda. We've embraced the culture of DevOps. We might be deploying software updates multiple times every day. Change approval boards, that's been replaced by DevOps pipelines, which has hopefully built-in security tests that will identify potential problems. And our ticketing system, where IT used to have complete control over the servers that were stood up, has really been replaced with anybody who's got a working credit card and an AWS account. Feeling overwhelmed yet? Now, if we can compare these two examples, 2013 to 2023, we can see there's some big differences. And the biggest difference is in the amount of change. We've gone from environments that were closely scrutinized by humans for harmful changes to dynamic environments where we have to trust the build process. Another way of saying this is the pace of business automated most of the manual processes away. Now, when you encounter this 2023 scenario, you need to understand that you'd have a big problem if you try to secure a modern environment with legacy approaches that would have worked 10 years ago. So if we dive into this problem space, we can see there's a few overarching problems that we really need to address. First, the move to the cloud has presented a new type of risk. Essentially, it's a lot easier for inexperienced programmers or even interns to make a misconfiguration and expose a service to the internet and AWS where they control the security grooves and the IP addresses 
versus the previous approach where if you're an intern, you had to go to the network team and they would respond by saying, hmm, this should not be internet facing. And you've got a sanity check in there. Secondly, as the developers write more code and build more services, there's a bigger chance for stuff to be deployed incorrectly before the security team has some awareness of it. For example, application teams now have 20 or 30 releases per month this year as compared to maybe one or two you might have had 10 years ago. And if you're lucky to have that or once a month back then. And then lastly, the amount of change greatly complicates security response activity. For example, 10 years ago, if the SOC detected malicious traffic coming from an IP address, they only had to look at a CMDB, Configuration Management Database, to identify with the application teams who own that IP address. You could then call the owner and say, hey, we're taking your system down because it's leaking data. And now, Configuration Management Database doesn't contain IP information because it's too hard to keep track of it when your IP addresses might change by the hour. So the SOC has to track down which application got a dynamic IP address from Amazon Web Services during a window of time before they could even coordinate incident response. Now, hopefully there's a metadata tag telling who the owner is, otherwise the murder mystery begins. Okay, so now that we understand that constant change is creating a dynamic IT environment, so what? Why is that such a big deal? Right now, we are experiencing an environment where malicious actors are automating their offensive cyber attacks faster than ever before. And because of this change in tactics, we need to adopt continuous attack surface mapping so we can find our vulnerabilities and patch them faster than they can be exploited automatically. Why is this happening? It's actually a result of one of our cures. I'm going to suggest it's because of MFA, multi-factor authentication. You see, before, the easiest way to break into a company was to fish the humans and trick them into running an Excel document. It contains macros, and you click on that, and off you go. Or socially engineering victims to give up their login credentials. EDR tools have made these types of attacks easier to detect. Better training for our users has reduced the vulnerability from that. And we've also seen the widespread adoption of MFA technologies that pretty much can thwart credential theft attacks. Well, if you've hardened up this one target that used to be your soft target, your humans, what's a bad actor going to do? Are they going to go ahead and get haircuts and commute into work and wear a suit and put in a nine-to-five chat? No, no. They're going to go ahead and attack some other place. And they've shifted into attacking internet-exposed systems as an initial entry vector instead of attacking humans. And the reason being is our systems are so complicated that they figure that the defenders can't keep track of all the details. And with a constant release of new vulnerabilities, the discovery of problems, potentially zero days, but also the ones that have been posted that we don't act upon, we're kind of opening the door off for them and we're making coming through the technology approach the easiest place when organizations have systems that are unpatched or misconfigured. Thus, I submit to you, we need to focus on attack surface management as an effective way of responding to the shift in attacker tactics. All right, let's go and cut over to our interview portion of the show. I think you're going to find this really interesting. So now we're going to bring in our special guest to talk about some solutions to this problem. And I'd like to welcome Richard Ford to the show. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me join today. Well, glad to have you on board. Hey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, please? Yeah, happy to. It's been an amazing ride for me because I've been doing security my whole career. 
I got into computer security the days when John McAfee was still running McAfee and Associates and Peter Norton was making Norton Disk Doctor, right? So I'm an old school security guy working places like Virus Bulletin, National Computer Security Association, Forcepoint, Siren, and currently I'm CTO at Praetorian. I think one of the things that makes me different from some of the security folks around is I've worked both the offensive world. So can I break this? Can I get in? Can I pivot? And I've worked the defensive world. So I've played both sides of that. And I think it's super important actually to be able to play both offense and defense. And then what else can I tell you? I live in beautiful, actually gray today, but beautiful generally Austin, Texas, with my wife and two cats. And if I'm not sitting here, you'd probably find me either playing chess online or playing jazz flute in the living room. Wow. That sounds like the complete modern security professional. Neat that you do, as they say, sometimes we think about having extra capabilities, like I can do offense and defense, but you jazz and chess and cats and everything else like that. That's pretty cool. But you're also a chief technology officer, and that's kind of an interesting role because a lot of folks that I work with don't seem to understand necessarily the difference between like a CTO and a CIO, but they are quite different. So how would you explain to somebody what you do as a chief technology officer? So I think an important consideration is what kind of company you're at. Right. So a CTO and a CIO can be closer in certain types of company. But for me, I'm working in a very, very tech forward company. So my job as CTO is to be looking out at the six to nine month range. So I'm looking at nine to infinity, essentially, in terms of time. Where's the market going? Right. Not what are we building right now, but what are we going to need to build to solve problems that customers don't even necessarily know they have yet? And then the other thing that a good CTO will do is they'll put their arms around what the secret source is for the company. Praetorian does a lot of things well to do attack surface management, but there are certain pieces that are core IP to what we do. And as CTO, I'm keeping an eye on that IP, making certain that we're pushing the ball forwards. Now, there's a lot of areas in cybersecurity. And of course, having worked in there for a number of years, since the good old days, I think I still have a copy of the original Norton Utilities kicking around. Of course, it won't run anymore. They didn't need a bit operating system, but that was kind of a fun to reminisce of the good old days. We could even fit an OS onto a floppy disk. But today, of course, things are a lot more complicated. The cybersecurity industry has really expanded. And so what attracted you to the problem space that you're working on right now? What was it that made you say, this is a problem I would think I can contribute a solution for. Sure. I'll give you two answers, right? The original answer of how I originally got into security. And then why do I care so much about attack surface management? So I originally got into security because my computer got a virus. So one day I was working in a physics lab. I'm actually a physicist by trade. And I booted my computer and it complained to me about the phone tariffs in Spain, in Spanish, and then killed itself. That was a, a virus called Spanish Telefonica. That was the sort of accident that got me into computer security because I wasn't accepting that all my data had gone. So I figured out how to recover it and disassembled the virus and switched from being a physicist to a computer scientist. Why I got into attack surface management or the work I'm doing right now with Praetorian is because my whole career has been security. And if we're really honest about it, it's like, have I really made a dent in the security problem in the years I've been trying to solve this? I would say no. I think we're in a poorer situation now than when I started all those decades ago. So when I saw this space starting to emerge and when I met Nathan and the Praetorian team, 
the mission of Praetorium is to really make a dent in cybersecurity, to actually give the defenders a fighting chance. And as somebody who's given my entire working career to computer security, to get around a group of people who are like, no, we're going to put a dent in the universe. We can't keep losing this game. We've got to find a way to win it. And I think a lot of your listeners are on the defensive side. They're CISOs. They know exactly, exactly what I'm talking about, right? You're always on the backside. You're always playing defense. You're always going, there's something horrible about to land on my head. And I think the thing that attracts me about managing an attack surface is it's actionable. So suddenly I've actually got a fighting chance against the bad guys. And that's very attractive to me. And that's rather inspiring, I think, for a lot of other folks who look at it to say, hey, you can actually roll up your sleeves and do something about the problem rather than which I've sometimes heard the expression, admiring the problem. Wow, that's very difficult. Well, yes, it is. It's horrible. Quite horrible, isn't it? And you're like, get out of the way. This is Richard coming through. I'm going to go fix stuff. And so what we find then in the idea of attack surface management and the whole concept of attack services we've been talking about earlier in the, is that with respect to anything that could be reached by a bad actor, if you will, anything that's exposed and therefore there's an issue for organizations trying to understand, well, is this really exposed? Yes or no. Are there attack vectors coming in that you're not even aware of and the like? I remember when going to, I think it was a SkyDogCon when Georgia Wiedemann used her cell phone to go ahead and hack a network and exfiltrate information coming through that thing while, while drinking a beer on stage. I mean, you could do that at hacker conferences. And that was the mind blowing thing to people to say that was not part of our attack surface model before that somebody could then come in through the phone, da, 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 and off they go and bypass all those other types of security controls that we might have. So in today, our modern IT infrastructure, it's very complex and it's difficult to understand the attack surface. So what tips would you have for our listeners who want to understand how to best respond to being able to control it, understand it, and then manage it effectively? I think the first step is really hard. And it's not hard because it takes a lot of time. It's hard because it requires brutal honesty with yourself. And the first step that I would take if I was sitting down with a partner, a client, just a friend who's a CISO, is ask them, where are you on the maturity curve? Start with a really honest assessment of where you are today. So many people want to go out and buy the latest and greatest tool. If you go to RSA, which I'm sure you do, when you go into the sort of startup village and it's packed full of CISOs looking for that silver bullet, right? Which is actually the wrong thing to look for because I'll tell you a secret. Silver bullets only work on werewolves. You really need the magic bullet, which is, is going to work everywhere. But I mean, kidding aside, we're all hunting this sort of latest and greatest thing that's going to stop the pain, right? Instead, what we need to do is take a really honest assessment of where you are. And once you've done that, you can go, oh, if I'm really monitoring my tool as, as tax service, am I mature enough to do something about it? Because if I'm just giving you bones, hey, you know, you're vulnerable to this thing. And you're like, I don't want to do about that. It's not very valuable. So start with understanding where you're beginning, where am I today? And what's the biggest bang for my buck? If the biggest bang for your buck is understanding where my exposures are and if they're vulnerable and if they're hit, can I see it? Then a tax service is very likely for you, a tax service management. But if you're lower down that curve, you don't have backups, you don't have multi-factor, you're getting fished every other day. You got to look at what's the biggest bang for the buck for your business. Because at the end of the day, your job isn't really about security. Your job is about enabling the business and you do that 
through allowing the business to operate in a secure manner. I think it's a very profound statement. I absolutely agree with you. I know we've talked about IT securities in the business of revenue protection. And the phrase I used to like to say is that our job as security professionals is to ensure that our management makes informed risk-based decisions. And that's really what we're talking about here. But one of the challenges in attack surface management is even understanding what is in your attack service and what's in your attack service includes things like shadow IT. And that's sort of the unknown unknowns, like Rumsfeld had said, you know, the things that you don't know that could bite you. And how would we go about getting our handle on the shadow IT problem, recognizing that some CISOs have a pretty good control over it, but others will look at you and go, let's not go there because I don't really know where to get started. How would you get somebody moving in the right direction in a definitive way? There are two big things that you can do. First of all, setting up external attack surface management isn't difficult, right? If you and I were sitting on our platform, we could have you up and running in maybe five or six mouse clicks, right? And that's not particularly special to us. That's, that's how this stuff works, right? You can start by just feeding in the domain that you own, and then the system will go out and figure out all the assets that are associated with it. That gives you pretty good coverage. If you want to get further into it, you can integrate with your cloud. So we can integrate with DNS, for example, in the cloud. So we see all the hosts that are getting spun up in the cloud. You can integrate with the cloud so that if I open an S3 bucket, it immediately pops up. Shadow IT can be harder because sometimes it doesn't lead back from DNS or an IP range that you own. And there are a couple of things that you can do. SASE is a good technology at the edge of your network to understand where your users are going and what they're doing. I think one of the things that we have to recognize, and I'm as guilty of this as the next person, but it is a trait of security people, is we let perfect be the enemy of better. So if you and I were sitting down and I said, look, you know, there's still going to be some coverage gaps, right? Nothing's perfect, but is this materially better? Is your risk materially lower because you took these steps and you said, yes, then we should step into that world as opposed to going, but it's not perfect. There's this thing hanging out there that might, that might be undiscovered. And I think that that's partly the nature of the mind of a security professional, but I think that it's very important that we live in the business space instead of the security space. And we go, what was the ROI of these steps, right? Have I saved money by spending this money? And if the answer is yes, then it's something that you should step into. So shadow IT is a difficult problem. Can we make it better with external attack service management? You betcha. Is it going to be necessarily perfect? Mm. Maybe, maybe not. Depends. I think the other thing is we tend to bundle all attack surface management solutions into the same box. And there's really a continuum. There's the ones that start that are extremely automated, right? Fully SaaS based. You put in your credit card, you put in your domain name, it spits out a report in 24 hours and poof, you're off and running. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there's the sort of very integrated managed services where you have a team of engineers at that company who are partnering with your employees to measure not just vulnerabilities found, but vulnerabilities fixed. And by the way, for an attack surface management program, what's the right metric? It is not vulnerabilities found. We always measure the wrong thing. It's vulnerabilities fixed. And that's a good point. It's a little bit like wrong compensation plan for someone in the sales. The number of sales calls made. No, at the end of the day, it's a number of checks that clear the bank because 
ultimately you could you go bankrupt with a million dollars in receivables if you don't have any cash flow. And really what we're talking about here then is an equivalent looking at the vulnerabilities to say, so what if you found a lot? Have you made some fixes? And in the shadow IT world, a lot of times shadow IT starts out as a tactical fix. Somebody needs something in a hurry. We have too long of a process through our IT approval or being able to just get her done. And the difficulty, though, is that these things accrue. They don't just show up, spin up, and then go away. They tend to persist because they slowly move from a tactical to a strategic requirement. And then we find out when somebody leaves the company and we cancel their corporate credit card and 30 days later, an important system goes dark and like, what happened to this? And then we realize that, hey, it happened. So one of the things we suggest is, I don't know, you could go through and talk to finance and let me look at everybody who's got a $74.99 taxi bill every week that they're trying to use that to hide their bills for their online providers. But are there steps that companies miss, things that would be obvious ways other than, I'm kind of saying that facetiously about looking for the taxi receipts, but in a way, there are tells out there that there's some shadow IT going on. Any insights in terms of being able to grab that and, as you said, pull them into the fold? So I think there's there's a couple of big buckets of shadow IT. There's, I signed up for, I don't know, something, Salesforce. Well, that's a bad example. It's kind of big. But, you know, imagine a small version of that. And you decide you're going to put stuff on there. It's purely SaaS-based. Your trick with a credit card isn't bad. Caspi could help. Sassy, understanding your outbound traffic. Those are all, all things that are valuable. Understanding your attack service can also help because sometimes you'll see, you'll, you'll name that. Right. Sometimes you end up adding that to your DNS and if we're exploring your DNS, we'll find it. But there's also a lot of shadow IT in your cloud infrastructure. And that's something that's much more amenable to attack surface management, because again, your attack surface management solution should be integrating with your cloud. So when a workload is spun up, we see it. There are customers that we have out there where you can see nine to five, Monday through Friday, engineers come in, they start working, they spin up a bunch of assets. Hopefully they remember to turn them down and then they turn them down. All those at risk. That's, that's all risk. And, and it used to be the case that if I wanted a server, I had to go, you know, take a cup of coffee or some candy down to the IT department and ask them really nicely. And they plunk something into a rack for me and they knew it was there. Now I just, I just whip out the corporate credit card or worse yet. I whip out my personal credit card and expenses. I want the points, right? I mean, we all do that. And this thing's running and you don't know anything about it. So, so I think it's a twofer. Monitor your own clouds because your engineers are standing up shadow IT all the time and forgetting to turn it down sometimes, right? And when they're experimenting, they're probably not using Terraform. They're probably not following best practices. They're probably just setting the cloud APIs to turn this stuff up and make really good use of your outbound traffic. Because if there's shadow IT that's coming, that's out there, you'll see the connection going out and, th and that's super useful. And so those are great technical solutions, which then we have to ask, how do we get management on board with this? How do we create an environment where leadership puts out a re-expectation, an order, depending on what type of environment you're in, where people should not be doing this, but they should be following a more straightforward path, if you will, going up for spinning up assets so that you're not in the investigative game of doing attack service management, but rather you're in the surface management game of let's go ahead and reduce these vulnerabilities. Let's not just try to find more places where we could be exposed. 
So any tips or ideas that you've got to communicate with senior management on that? Oh, absolutely. First of all, you want to reduce the amount of this. And, and it's very rare that somebody sets up shadow IT to be a jerk, right? They're not doing it because they're like, ah, ha, 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 I got the, the CISO on this one. They're doing it because they're trying to solve a business problem. So to, to channel my inner Jeff Goldblum, nature will find a way. If you find a channel that's approved where it's easy to work with your IT team or your tech team to enable these things, people will do that because it's the path of least resistance. If you're the partner of no, then they'll find another way. And we've seen this before when there was a bit of the government that completely banned USB drives. What do people do? They started using cloud storage, which was even worse to transfer stuff that should never have left the machine to another machine, right? Nature will find a way. You have to have a pressure relief valve for people who are trying to do the right thing. They're just trying to get their job done. That's why shadow IT pops up. It's not because it's very rarely, I should say, because somebody's trying to be evil. It's that just trying to get the job done. So you have to have a pressure release valve and they will take the path of least resistance. If your team is difficult to work with, guess what? You're setting yourself up for failure. How do you get management to buy in? This is actually really easy, right? Everybody makes it hard. The board, the CEO, they don't speak security. They speak one language and that language is money. Right. So if you speak to them in the language they understand and you put together a plan that looks like a business plan, not a, this is the latest and greatest tech widget and it can detect CVE, blah, 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 which they don't care about. They, they might glaze over. They might cough up the money for your budget because they're scared. But if you say, look, we can spend $50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars on this service. And we've run the calculations. We look at our bug bounty program. From last year, we paid out $600,000 on dangling a records. This is a tax service management thing that goes away. So you're spending a hundred to get 600 and I get all these other benefits. No manager in the world's going to say no to that. And I think part of the problem is that we got into this. Most of us got into this because we love tech, but we're really a business function and we need to speak the language of the business. And that's very wise advice. I think you brought up the idea one of the biggest mistakes can be you just go all technical geeky with the senior management and you get in there and you start throwing bits and bytes. You said, oh, we got to learn on the IDS. We got a DNS that didn't resolve over there, came on port 53, but it was on TCP instead of UDP. And we think that the payload, they're like, yeah, we're speaking a different language, but rather, as you had said, talk about money. And in a way, talking about risk really is what we're doing here is how to lower the uncertainty for an organization's leadership to do things better and therefore ensure that the business continues to go. For the organizations that have been successful, and success leaves clues, have you seen any key lessons that companies have done a really good job of being able to build an attack surface management program and prioritize the risks and then detect or even prevent their attacks? I love the way you phrased that because I think, I think there's one word in there that's, that's so important, program. It's not like you flick a switch and now the tax service management is running. I put my credit card in, I signed up and look at this list of vulnerabilities. No, you're recognizing that this is a program. It's a commitment. It's like you're recording this in the January, right? So, so there's a whole bunch of people who are like, I'm re-upping my gym membership. Yeah. Congratulations. You've done nothing. 
if you start using that gym membership and you're going to the gym a few times a week, okay, now we're talking, right? It's a program. It's not the act of spending the money. In fact, one of the things that I think we do in cyber quite a lot is we buy tools and then we let them rot, or we buy tools and we don't use them to their full effect. It's better to sometimes to have fewer tools that you get the full value out of, right? So I think that's kind of super, super important. Recognizing it's a program. There's a customer conversation that I'm remembering where they said, look, Rich, you know, it's great. You told me that there's an RCE on this thing. That's awesome. That's the start of my bad day. It's not the end of my bad day. Now I got to figure out who owns it, where it is. Is it a critical system? You know, it's like we, as a vendor, we have to recognize that Knowing about a vulnerability is the start of a process. It is not the end of a process. And the customer only receives value from knowing about that vulnerability when that vulnerability goes away. So you have to buy into it. It's like if you, if you try and change 10 habits at the same time, you're going to be unsuccessful in all 10, right? There's a, there's a good book, Atomic Habits, right? Great book. Pick a little thing, make it a habit, do it reliably, and then pick another one rather than I'm changing the world and you don't because you fail on all fronts. So step into it, recognize it's a program, decide before you do this, that this is the biggest bang for your buck and commit to it. Get your senior management to commit to it. Get some KPIs that make sense because you get what you measure. So if your KPI is, I will discover more vulnerabilities in my external attack surface. I would argue that's not a great KPI. I will fix all vulnerabilities I find within X hours of knowing about them. And I will reduce X to X over two over the course of three quarters. Now you're talking because the business is materially better off. So having a effective way and efficient, but I guess more effective is probably more important here on measuring our maturity in there is also different frameworks that could potentially be utilized and around which to structure. The NIST cybersecurity framework, ISO 27001, there's a number of different programs that are out there that are designed for best practices. From your perspective, looking at attack surface management, is any one of these better than the others? Do they all provide the same level of, if you will, structure to create the programs that will give us the insight to create the measurements, to create the feedback, to ensure actions are successful, or is it just kind of potluck, pick whatever one you like? Well, I firmly believe you get what you measure, right? This is a fundamental truth of life. You get what you measure. And so if you pick the wrong metrics for your program, you will end up getting whatever that metric behavior drives. I think we talked earlier about an example with sales. Let's measure the number of calls you make, Richard. Not a great metric. I can make a lot of calls. I'm quite happy to sit on the phone all day. Same with frameworks and measuring maturity. You have to look at what outcome are you trying to drive within your company. So for example, some businesses are highly regulated. So what they care most about is, is baseline exposure. So for me, if I'm in that business, I might say my metric is I will have zero of this equipment type exposed to the internet, right? I'm going to set a bar or I might say I will only expose services of this type to the internet and nothing else. That could be an example of, of a metric based on my risk profile. Another company might be continually putting stuff up and down in the cloud and they're very experimental. They're very lean forwards from a technology. They're not dealing in that part of their network with super confidential data. 
So maybe they care more about mean time to response. They know that it's a little bit wild west by the nature of the beast. It's not super confidential data, but they want to tamp it down. What's their mean time to response from something getting spun up to until it's found until it's fixed. Right. And so those times may be the right metrics. And I think as the CISO or the person that owns the program, you have to decide what is the behavior I'm trying to drive? What is the outcome that I want? And then set up the right metrics. I think that in general, cybersecurity metrics are lagging, right? I've seen metrics drive horrific behaviors as a consultant. I remember a company, and this is going back a long, long time. So, you know, this is going back maybe well over a decade who would come down they have this sort of zero malware metric. And if you, if you broke it, you were like persona non grata in the, in the company. And I literally found an instance of somebody destroying their machine because they got some trivial virus, right? They're like, I don't know. I spilled a Coke into it. I'm like, okay, this is, this is not good, right? This is your metric is driving absolutely not the right behavior. Let's revisit the behaviors you want and then figure out how to get those behaviors, the business outcome that you need. That also is a great insight. I'm, I'm taking notes here as we go through because there's a lot of good ideas that I've gotten out of this. And this has been fascinating, but let's project forward in time. An organization that doesn't have an effective attack surface management program today. They've probably got shadow IT, but I say probably because they don't know. They just sort of suspect that and they know that things are operating out of band. Their metrics, their measurements are not driving the intended behaviors. And as a result, they're not getting the outcome that they expect. Well, that's today's state. Organization says, yes, we're going to do something about that. We're going to embrace a solution. They go into the solution space. They find tools that are out there, programs that are out there and engage that. So in a couple of years, now they have a fully automated continuous attack surface management system. They can trigger warnings to the developers so they can fix things right away. They've got telemetry to know if bad actors are targeting them before they actually go after the fixes. Is there anything that this might work on that we could focus from a manual perspective? I think humans in the loop are actually very important. And again, I'll tell you a story, if I may, about a real world situation that we dealt with. So again, tax ups management solutions come in all flavors from completely SaaS to very sort of hands-on white glove. We were working with a customer and we found an issue in their attack surface and we raised it. We're more on the white glove side, right? Serious issue. Hey, Mr. Customer, you have this serious issue on your attack surface and it's going to give us RCE. Their response was, no, no, we know about that. It's not a big deal. You can't do much with it. Here's, here's why we think it's not, right? If we'd been a fully automated SaaS solution, what would have happened? You'd have clicked reject, move on. Our engineers went, no, actually we really can get RC and we're demonstrating it. Can we jump on a call? We showed them in the terminal. Hey, does this look like you're a command prompt? Hey, can we see the rest of your cloud from here? Oh yeah, that is real. I think the importance of having really smart people in the loop, you can help the customer. In a perfect world, our customers shouldn't have to be security experts. They should be experts in their own business. And again, you've got a bunch of people listening today who are like, oh my God, these people are so expensive. I can't hire them. When I do hire somebody and maybe I hire and I train them up, they just go away in two years because they can get a 30% pay raise, right? So 
So it's really challenging for customers, for defenders to get staff, pay for those staff, because let's face it, they're getting expensive, and then retain those staff. And so I think it's really important to keep that human in the loop, to have a partner who will roll around in you in the trenches. When Log4J came out, right, that's when you needed a partner. You didn't need a SaaS solution that was like bubbling up stuff. You needed a partner to go, okay, let's take a breath. Let's figure out where the arms and legs of this thing are. Let's figure out where it is in your infrastructure. And by the way, that's one of the best arguments for attack surface management. God help us, the next version of Log4J comes out. You don't want to be going, oh, I wonder if I've got any, let's say it's in Jira. I wonder if I've got any Jira exposed to the internet. Let me think. You want to be able to go to a dashboard and go, bam, it's this one, this one, and this one. I'm on it. They're shut down. Okay. You know, the, the time to start wondering where your machines are isn't when you're going, oh, there's a brand new RCE out. That's, you know, an O-Day and here's the Metasploit sort of thing. It's wide banded and somebody's turned it into a worm. What do I do? The time to know where your assets are is on a sunny day when you have 30 seconds to take a breath. You want to have that nice database. And then when it gets rainy, your umbrella in hand, ready to shelter. That also, I'm writing that down as a great thing. So really your tax surface management gives you, if you will, a preemptive response plan. The old saying in the military, you'll fight the way you train in a way corresponds to this because when we are not in a combat situation, when we're not fighting the bad guy, it's best time to go ahead and really understand what's out there. So let's recap a little bit about some of the things that we've discussed here and some of our conversation we had prior about important things that we could do. You'd, you'd mentioned importance of knowing where all your assets are and if they're vulnerable. And just simply enumerating vulnerabilities is not the goal. It's being able to have an action plan and actually fix them. Another point that you brought out is understanding your own organization and maybe a managed solution, a managed service may be better than a pure SaaS play, particularly if you're dealing with the cloud and putting things up there. And then the benefits and the use cases are a whole lot different than just, do I have vulnerable assets? Essentially, you want to be able to go ahead and understand how well your defenses are working, you want to reduce your costs and things such as that, and being able to, in a perfect world, have your own internal bug bounty program rather than letting your customers find things for you because you've done effective more things. Is there anything else you could think of before we, we wrap up our show here? No, I think you really hit the high notes there, right? Look. It's hard being a CISO, right? Every call you have, somebody's trying to sell you something that you probably may or may not need. The important thing is what's right for your business. I'm going to bring it back to the business again, right? This attack service management is an amazing tool. Absolutely amazing. But is it right for where you are today? Is this the biggest bang for your buck? Is this the program that reduces your risk the most? And if it is, jump in with both feet. But if it isn't, hold your course. Because you know your network, right? You know where you're vulnerable. You know where you're losing the fight. Be aware of how the world's changing and that your risks change every day. And we're moving from slow evolution, like we talked at the beginning of our interview, from the good old days of early computing, where we even know what happened to drives A and B. Today, people come in and said, why do we start with the C drive? It's a kind of a forgotten art. But I had CFPCs with and that was a fairly static environment. Things didn't change. Today, we're very dynamic. Our environments change very quickly. A manual process is simply not going to be fast enough to effectively respond to the challenge of attack surface management. 
and to be able to allow our organization to grow safely as well as securely, then we need to have a better way to do so. And that's really what we've been talking about, having real-time alerts, being able to look at our attack surface management, have that continuously available, as they say, in the non-conflict time when things are good, so that when a new vulnerability comes out, we can respond immediately to it and go right to those systems. We don't have to stop and wonder what is out there. I have to pick all these little notes that I took of the things that I really like. I like your idea about metrics driving behavior and getting the right metrics to drive the right behavior is being very, very important. Another thing which is more technical is looking at your outbound traffic and your DNS to try to spot things that you might not find otherwise, but being able to preemptively know what's in your environment before things go bad, because ultimately, in the event of a breach, someone's going to have to enumerate all this. and You're going to be paying a lot of money for these consultants to come in and do the cleanup. And it's an activity that perhaps the breach could have been avoided in the first place if you just known what was out there. So I think that the concept of attack surface management is going to be a growing one this year. If hopefully, you'll see a, a lot more ability to help organizations out there. And this has been really great insight for us. And I hope for our listeners that you really enjoyed this. And, and thank you for tuning into the CISO Tradecraft podcast. If you like our show, go ahead and share with others so they can know where you get your good information and they can improve their skills as well. If you have a comment or a topic, Drop us a note. Go to CISOTradeCraft.com or go to our LinkedIn page. Follow us if you're not following us on LinkedIn and send us a note. Let us know how we're doing. There's a lot of good stories out there, and we try to share information every week. This is your host, G. Mark Hardy. Today, we've had our special guest, Richard Ford. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, stay safe out there.